0: Turn with me to Genesis 1, and actually we'll be right at the very end of Genesis 1, so right near Genesis 2. Everyone knows that the best stories of all time grab your attention by the beginning once upon a time, and that's how they all start. Apparently that's the law. You're transported to another time, to another world, another place where all things are possible and only your imagination can limit what can or cannot be done. I've read a lot of fiction, but even in the realm of fantasy or science fiction, which emphasizes great and fantastic stories beyond imagination, none of those can possibly compare with the grand and the epic scale of the plot of Scripture. It just doesn't, nothing comes close. The story of the Bible has a much better start than once upon a time. It commences with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what's so unique about the biblical story is that it's all completely true, and you believe that, but what's really unique is that although the book has been completed, the story has passed you up, it's passed us up in time, so that the end of the story hasn't actually happened yet. So the book is complete, but the story is ongoing. Now we've introduced the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, in broad sweeping terms to try to prepare you for going through the text chapter by chapter, but tonight I want to talk to you about how to understand Genesis and to really get our feet grounded in this book, and hopefully this will include some concepts you've already picked up on since the key to learning is repetition, and so we will do some of that, but what we want to highlight this evening is the theme of the kingdom of God. And I want to orient you to Genesis with that emphasis in mind. And and I think we miss that so often. At the end of the evening, we'll apply what we've learned to how we're to think and how we're to behave as believers in Christ since all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But to begin our time, I just want to get our minds thinking about kingdom here. And so I want to just make a quick list from Genesis 1 and 2, of some of the features of the earthly kingdom, the original earthly kingdom set up by God. And we'll just do this very quickly. The first feature, we see mankind in a perfect world created by God. Mankind in the perfect world created by God. Look with me at Genesis 1, last verse of the chapter. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day, Chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So there's this perfect world created by God. Another feature that we've spoken of, but we want to include it now tonight, we see mankind as a perfect representative of God on earth. Mankind is a perfect representative of God. Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God means that we are the most perfect representative of God on earth, that there is not a, a monkey or a giraffe or a hippopotamus that represents God. We're made in his image, and so we are his representatives. We see a third feature, a fourth feature rather, mankind multiplying into nations spread over the earth. Mankind multiplying into nations spread over the earth. The very next verse, Genesis one twenty-eight, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over everything that moves on the earth. We see completed there, and I missed one. Mankind exercising dominion over the earth. Mankind exercising dominion. Verse 26, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And we saw last time that that means has the idea of treading underneath, of treading upon. Here's another feature. Mankind working as God's representatives on earth. Mankind working as God's representatives. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And we spent a bit of time on that a couple of messages ago. We see also mankind in perfect fellowship with God. Here's the perfect fellowship with God. chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so as long as that relationship is maintained, as long as mankind fulfills his end of that covenant, that his end of that Uh, mandate then there'll be perfect fellowship and we have the garden of eden here where there's direct communion with god and there's obedience to god there's not a a separation We, we would think it unusual because we're so used to being separated from god we would think it unusual to speak to him face to face that was not unusual for adam that was the norm there was no separation between him and god Another feature, mankind not only in perfect fellowship but in sinless relationship with God. Mankind in a sinless relationship with God back in Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them. That's the sign of a sinless relationship where where no sin has come between the fellowship between God and mankind. Another feature, mankind in perfect fellowship with each other. We're in perfect fellowship with each other. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage was originally created as as the ultimate reflection of the relationship between uh, the, the triune God and the relationship between God and man. And it's the ultimate human relationship. It's the ultimate picture of perfect fellowship. Even now in our sinful world in which we're clothed and ashamed as it were, the marriage relationship is meant still to be a taste of that perfect human relationship because of total vulnerability and intimacy and oneness and unity. We even see this in Genesis 2.25 and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so there's to be perfect fellowship between all of those in the kingdom and then one more feature mankind is organized into nations with a central capital nation mankind is organized into nations with a central capital nation chapter 2 verse 10 a river flowed out of eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers This is clearly a central location. Eden is not just the garden. There's a garden that is in Eden. There's a garden that is of Eden, but Eden is bigger than the garden. Eden would be a nation. It would be a land. Verse 11 speaks of the land of Havilah. Verse 13, the land of Cush. Verse 14 speaks of Assyria. Now, obviously, those weren't the names of those nations yet necessarily at the moment of creation, especially Assyria, but the fact is is that the Holy Spirit in Genesis 2 has already organized the world into nations, and there's a clear capital nation. Eden is the center, a river flows, it divides into four rivers. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Ezekiel, it calls this the holy mountain of God, and so there is a capital nation. So those are some features of the original kingdom found in Genesis 1 and 2. Just file that list away in your mind for a while, and we'll come back to it later. Let the core of the kingdom plan, the, the central part of the kingdom plan, is found in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And just for, for our review, then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Now, in previous messages, we've called this the central directive. This is the thrust, the focus of the entire story of the Bible. We could also call this simply God's kingdom plan. God's kingdom plan. And a good way to understand the overall message of Genesis is to examine some key pieces of that kingdom plan. So what we're going to do tonight is just do kind of a a high-altitude flyover. And try to wrap our minds and our hearts around what the Lord would have us to understand about this grand kingdom plan. Because without Genesis, the rest of the Bible makes no sense. There is no context. And so Genesis is so important for us. So we'll look in very broad terms at six of these key pieces of the kingdom plan. I'm going to jump around to a lot of places in Genesis. I think it might be more useful for you to just listen and maybe note the references so the first key piece of the kingdom plan, we'll call it the interruption of the kingdom plan. I hate to start negative, but the Bible pretty much does also. The interruption of the kingdom plan. After the glorious creation of the universe and the world in six literal 24-hour days, after the creation of man and woman in the perfect world as God's chosen representatives who were to be fruitful, they were to multiply, they were to fill the earth with their offspring, sin, interrupted the whole kingdom plan as viewed from the human vantage point the origin of sin really is very much a mystery to us here's what we do know we know first that satan was the first to sin satan was the first to sin isaiah 14 beginning of verse 12 tells of the fall of satan How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And he sinned. Ezekiel 28 gives us even more detail, tells us that Satan was perfect in every way. It tells us that he was in the Garden of Eden. He was the anointed, meaning the head, the chief guardian angel. He was supposed to guard Adam and Eve. He was supposed to keep them from anything that could harm them. And it says that he was on the holy mountain of God. The Garden of Eden. Ezekiel twenty-eight fifteen says, "You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you." Satan was the first to sin. Something else we know: sin did not originate with God. Sin did not originate with God. Habakkuk one fourteen says that God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Isaiah six famously says that God is holy, holy, holy. Therefore, sin cannot originate with God. But the third part of this that we do understand, sin is part of God's overarching sovereign plan. Sin is part of God's overarching sovereign plan, all without touching His holiness, all without violating His purity for His own purposes, for His own glory. And I know the question we often have is, is why not just skip the whole sin thing in the first place? That is in the mind of God alone. We don't know the perfect mind of God in allowing a sinful Satan to enter the garden. But we do know that God entered into a relationship with Adam as his appointed representative. And this representation entailed responsibility. And this would naturally include loyalty. And the only way to test that loyalty was to give Adam a choice. If there was no choice at all, there isn't really a a, a true test of loyalty. So God gave Adam a limitation. Yes, Adam was the human Lord over the earth, except for one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was God's and God's alone. He was not to touch it. Therefore, Adam had a choice. He could demonstrate loyalty to his sovereign God with unqualified faithfulness, or he could attempt to step outside of those bounds, enter the serpent. Genesis 3 and Adam failed the consequence was immediate spiritual death immediate alienation from God and eventual physical death and alienation from his own body the, the perfect physical spiritual man that God created Adam to be would now be disintegrated would be separated and the alienation had a horizontal consequence as well the man was now placed at odds with his wife and vice versa I can't imagine that when we're all in heaven, Adam's going to get blamed for every fight that every married, married couple has ever had. The man and woman together were made in the image of God, but now the image bearers were tainted with sin. And the curse of Genesis 3 tells us that there would be strife between them. The man would be harsh, the woman would be domineering, and they would be at each other. So the reality of sin now becomes the stain which God's plan for restoring the kingdom is working out of creation. Sin has to be acknowledged, it has to be dealt with as a major theme now on every page of scripture. And the rest of the story of the Bible is about God's plan to restore mankind and to restore creation to his original kingdom purposes. So the kingdom plan is interrupted almost immediately. I mean, you start reading your Bible and the first two chapters are glorious and you get to Genesis 3 and you go, oh, 1,186 more chapters to go before sin is eradicated. Which would make the second key piece of, of our plan tonight a logical conclusion. Not only the interruption to the kingdom plan, but the resistance to the kingdom plan. The second key piece is the resistance to the kingdom plan. From the very get-go, from the start of sinful humanity, the offspring of Adam and Eve were resistant to God, resistant to his purposes, resistant to his plan. Some desired to follow the Lord, as we'll see in Genesis 5, but most did not. We could track the unfaithful through Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, but we'll just skip to the time when all of mankind had rejected their creator, the one true living God, Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God, as the owner of his creation, decided to wipe out his creation, save one man and his family, Noah. God had buried Adam in the ground after his death. Genesis 3.19 says, God predicted to Adam, you shall return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And now God is going to bury all of mankind under the waters of judgment, under the flood. And God would begin again with a second Adam, a guy named Noah. Noah was a true believer in the Lord, but he was chosen. He was elected by God as an object of the, the saving grace of the Lord. Genesis 6, 8 says, Noah found favor, This is the Hebrew word for grace. He was given grace from the Lord. Noah was God's choice. Boy, you think election is strict now? There was one guy that got chosen then and his family. And even that is called God's grace. Genesis 6.18 says, the Lord says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So which covenant is God talking about here? Well, yes, we know about the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah in which God promised in Genesis 9 never to wipe out the earth with a flood again. But that's not the all-encompassing feature of that covenant. That's just kind of the icing on the cake. The covenant begins in Genesis 9, 1, and this, is, this goes all the way back to the original central directive of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that mankind was to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. After the flood, Genesis 9, 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's plan hasn't changed. And then again in Genesis 9, verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So you have these bookends. Chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 7. To be fruitful, to, be multi- to multiply, and to fill the earth. What goes in between? What goes in between is we have a new reality now. We have a new reality in a sinful world. New conditions of this mandate are spelled out. There's a couple of them. When Adam was the vice-regent of the earth, the animals of the earth were subservient. Adam named them. He was in perfect relation with them. But now, with Noah as the vice regent of the earth, Genesis 9, 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. In other words, now to survive, mankind would have to be domineering, and the animal kingdom is now afraid of mankind. And another condition. Because of sin, God introduced the death penalty into human existence. He introduced human government, that if you shed the blood of a man, your blood shall be shed. That's to keep mankind in living, from living in total anarchy and chaos. Now mankind has another chance to follow after God. There's only eight people on earth. They're all followers of the Lord. Maybe mankind will stop resisting God's kingdom plan. But that wasn't going to happen resistance continued it heightened in noah's descendants genesis 11 records the building of the tower of babel and they had one distinct purpose and that was to thwart the kingdom plan of god to go opposite of the central directive in genesis 11:4 they said come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth So instead of doing God's bidding, the the people of the world decided to stick together to make a name for themselves. They did not want to be fruitful. They did not want to multiply at the level that God intended. So God confused their language into many languages. The peoples were forced to now disperse into national groupings based in language. And so because of sin, resistance to the kingdom plan now continues. But in God's sovereignty, in the very next chapter after the Tower of Babel, we get to the third piece of God's kingdom plan. We'll call this the strategy of the kingdom plan. The strategy of the kingdom plan. How was God going to bring about a perfect kingdom on earth per his design? Enter a man named Abram. God told Abram to leave his homeland of Ur and go to a land that God would subsequently show him. God was about to enter into a covenant with Abram soon to be renamed by God Abraham I'll explain that in a moment it was to be an unconditional covenant that God was going to fulfill his part no matter what now the enjoyment of the benefits of that covenant was conditional based on Abram's obedience first he had to obey the Lord and leave Ur to go to Canaan but God's part of the covenant was unconditional And as part of this covenant, God was going to give to Abraham to give to his physical descendants a specific portion of land. Now, you've heard us talk frequently about the importance of the land promises of the Old Testament and how these are to be taken quite literally because they're part of the unconditional covenant which God will never abandon, the Abrahamic covenant. This is important because the land promises are, are so key to God's covenant with Abraham, you can't spiritualize it, you can't redefine it as something else. Dr. Eugene Merrill, eminent Old, Te- Old Testament scholar, he wrote this, quote, as most scholars now recognize, the covenant and its circumstances were in the form of a royal land grant, a legal arrangement well attested in the ancient Near East. So what's a royal land grant? Well, this was an arrangement where a a more powerful king made a covenant with a less powerful king. This was, as I've said before, a, a suzerain-vassal relationship. The powerful king, the suzerain, or the sovereign, made a deal with the lower king, the vassal, the servant king. And this covenant bestowed on the vassal a kingdom under the rule, under the sovereign rule of the, the suzerain, the sovereign king. Sometimes there was a known reason for this uh, bestowing, this rendering, but often it was simply the gracious pleasure, the, the good pleasure and the grace of the sovereign. And there wasn't a reason listed. And Scripture doesn't give a reason. It's just what God chooses to do. Now, God's covenant with Abraham not only continues the mandates to Abraham, or to Adam rather and to Noah to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion over the earth, now it spells out a strategy to accomplish the central directive all the way to the end of time. And this strategy is to bring about God's kingdom plan. It's first introduced in Genesis 12, 1 through three, and it's reiterated and explained another half dozen times through Genesis to make sure that we get it, we understand it. And so there's a few features to this strategy, this covenant. First of all, God would make Abram into a great nation. He would make him into a great nation. This, of course, would be the nation of Israel, which would come through Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob. And so there would be a a great nation. The second piece of this covenant, of this strategy, is that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth and kings would come from him. Genesis 17 says this. All the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed in Abraham. Kings would come from him. And so God changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. Not just a multitude of people, but a multitude of nations. And so how does this one chosen nation and God's blessing through Abraham to all the nations, how do these work together? Well, Israel, the chosen nation, was to be a mediatorial nation, a a mediating function to stand between the sovereign God of the universe and fallen creation and to tell them of saving grace. That's what they were to do, of the opportunity to be part of the people of God. And it was to be through Israel that the world would learn of the great and the only true God, Yahweh, the one who created them and created all things. And just as Eden functioned as the central nation where God uniquely dwelt with his people, Israel was now to serve as the central nation where God uniquely dwelt with his people. And so for any idea of dominion and nationhood to be meaningful, you have to have land. You can't say we're a great nation, we just don't have any place to go. That's not a great nation. Even today, Israel has a nickname. It's called the Holy Land. It's the land that's set apart, the land which belongs to God and is given to his chosen mediator nation. Listen, anyone on earth besides Israel who makes a claim to that land is fighting against a 4,000-year-old decree by God. God promised in Genesis 17, 8, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God specified the exact size of the land grant in Genesis 15, 18. To your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt, that is, the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates. That's essentially the west to east Boundaries, borders of the land grant. And then, nine other times in Scripture, you see the phrase from Dan, that's way in the north, to Beersheba, that's way in the south. And that describes the north south boundaries, meaning that the land promised to Israel by God occupies current Israel, the nations of Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, most of Iraq, a little piece of Kuwait, part of Egypt, and the northern tip of Saudi Arabia. In the economy of God, all of those nations are squatters on God's land. They are invaders. Then there's a third piece to this promise, to this covenant, to the strategy. God would give Abraham a seed, plural, meaning God promised Abraham that this nation would number like the stars of the sky and like the sand of the seashore. Why is this? Because in Israel, God would see his central directive to be fruitful and to multiply Fulfilled but the promise also includes a seed singular, a singular man, Genesis twenty two, seventeen, who shall possess the gate of his enemies. And we wonder well, what is that singular man? What is he? Who is he? Galatians three sixteen, the Apostle Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So, we already see the beginnings of how the kingdom plan is going to be worked out. In Abraham, a chosen nation would come who would mediate between God and sinful humanity, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed, ultimately through the sinless Jew, Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, just as a little side note, as part of his covenant with Abraham, God made another promise. It was a personal promise, it was a promise of personal blessing and protection to him and this was necessary so that the rest of the promises wouldn't be in danger genesis 12 i will bless you and make your name great i will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you i will curse and this is important because despite abraham's failings never did god threaten to undo his promise not one time these are promises which are still in effect today and we expect prophetically them to be carried out for example, immediately after receiving these covenant promises from God, I mean, the next thing that happens, Abram goes to Egypt because of a famine and he told his beautiful wife, Sarah, who still named Sarai at that time, to say, he, he said to her, tell everyone you're my sister so that I won't be killed because of you. And because she told everyone that she was Abram's sister, Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's court as a result Abraham had not trusted the Lord. He had instead trusted his own cunning, his own deception. And yet, what did the Lord do? Genesis twelve seventeen. but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Even though Abram wasn't trusting the Lord, he was keeping his promise. Anyone who curses you, I'm going to curse. In Genesis 14, Abraham and his men won a great battle over several kings who had kidnapped abraham's nephew lot i don't know about you but even if i'm a rich guy with a couple of hundred servants i'm not going up against three or four kings but he did and he won genesis 20 and 21 the philistine king abimelech made a covenant and a friendship with abraham because he came to recognize that being abraham's friend was much safer than being his enemy because abimelech had also taken sarah but god spoke to him in a dream at night and gently said behold you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken this is god coming to abram's side to keep his end of the bargain now why do i take time to mention that aspect of the covenant god made with abraham because it illustrates perfectly how god treats his elect that once he promises to keep you and to protect you he will never go back on that no matter what in fact that's our fourth key piece the elect of the kingdom plan the elect of the kingdom plan now we've been talking in broad terms about israel and about nations but the question that you have and 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 i have certainly is well where does that leave me as an individual how do i fit into this it's all well and good to say that through israel the nations will hear the one true god but do i get to be included in that plan how do i fit in in my little life Well, because of sin, the interruption of God's kingdom plan, there is an alienation, a separation between humanity and God, so there has to be reconciliation. And that really is the heart and soul of the biblical gospel, is the idea of reconciling God and man. This is both an event and a process. God would have to conquer sin, which had now been introduced into his creation, and this is central in God's promise that he made to Satan in the Bible's first promise of a coming Savior in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Mankind could not cover his own sin. You remember what Adam tried to do pitifully? He tried to cover his nakedness with a fig leaf of his own making. Genesis three seven but salvation cannot be accomplished by human initiative. It must be accomplished by divine initiative. Genesis three twenty one: the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The implication being that God sacrificed animals on their behalf. And very quickly after the fall of man into sin, we see the results of sin in individuals. The very first human being born on earth, Cain, murdered his brother Abel, Cain's descendant Lamech threatened his wives and boasted about murdering a man simply for striking him. And so individuals need salvation from sin. And already in Genesis, we see how these individuals are identified, how they're selected, so to speak. Genesis 10 and 11 is concerned with all of humanity. It's a big picture. It culminates in the Tower of Babel in this confrontation in which the people of the earth gather themselves against God and against his plan, and all of a sudden we go from Genesis eleven one, the whole earth has one language to Genesis twelve one, the Lord said to Abram, and you literally go from the whole world down to one man. And the focus of Genesis narrows instantly to this one man and to his descendants. And in fact, those are the two major section divisions of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 are concerned with the cosmic issues of God and the sovereign creator, the divine order for life, the entrance of sin into the world, the rejection of God's plan by the people of the earth. And those 11 chapters cover a minimum of 2,000 years of human history. The chapters 12 through 50 now deal with just four generations in one family, the family of Abram, Abraham. And what was the criteria the Bible gives for Abraham being this one man? Simply, the Lord said to Abram, meaning he chose him, just like God chose Noah, just like he chose Adam before him. Abraham would be promised a son through whom the promised nation would come. Abraham already had a son named Ishmael. But God said, no, Isaac, the miracle son, he will be the chosen one. Isaac would have twin sons, Esau and Jacob. The, the the older is always chosen for all honor and all glory. But God chose Jacob, the younger, to be the chosen one through whom the elect nation would come. So already we're seeing the seeds of the idea of election The election of God, the individuals chosen by God for divine purposes and for salvation. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The doctrine of election is among the easiest of the doctrines of grace to prove from Scripture because it's everywhere. Somebody might argue some of the nuances of election from the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, it's very clear. God chose Noah. God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. And we can go on and on with that. And of course, it's openly stated in the New Testament in Ephesians 1 that he chose us before the foundation of the world. And this is according to the purpose of his will. So far, we see the interruption of the kingdom plan, resistance to the kingdom plan, the strategy of the kingdom plan, the elect of the kingdom plan. But what's the kingdom plan going to look like when it's finally consummated? What does it look like when mankind truly is having perfect dominion and subduing the earth? Well, that brings us to the fifth piece of God's kingdom plan, and we'll call it the preview of the kingdom plan. The preview of the kingdom plan, and this is so exciting for us, it should be at least. What does it look like when a pre-fall man who is without sin lives on the earth? What would it look like if Adam hadn't failed? Well, we have to go outside the bounds of Genesis to see that because in Genesis, that hope is simply by faith. It isn't realized yet. And of course, our preview of the kingdom plan of dominion, of subduing, as you recall, meaning to tread underfoot, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is described by the Apostle Paul as the second Adam. This is associated with his work of salvation and redemption. He is the first man, so to speak, of a regenerated people. First Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. A few verses later in verse 45, thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Romans five twelve through 17 give great detail about Christ as the second Adam. We're going to go into that in a couple of weeks, so I won't mention it too much tonight. But the life of Jesus Christ is also the life of the second Adam. Jesus didn't just come to earth to die. He came to live. He came to live and he demonstrated so much for us that the life of Christ demonstrated by his power and by his glory all that God intended for a sinless Adam to accomplish, all that we were meant to accomplish. Jesus fulfilled by his life what an unfallen Adam might have done and he fulfilled by his death restoring that future back to us through the elect of God. Now we could give many illustrations of this, but I want to offer one or two. Matthew eight twenty three through 27 speaks of the fact that the winds and the waves obey Christ when he calmed the sea. And yes, we definitely see the Lord Jesus proving his deity by his miracles. But when he calmed the, the storming sea He's also proving something else. He's demonstrating what having dominion looks like. The dominion to which Adam was originally assigned. How about Jesus walking on water? Matthew 14, Mark 6, John 6 records this. Bolstered in his own faith. You remember the apostle Peter? He walked on water briefly. This isn't just a lesson of great faith though, but in that that moment, peter was experiencing total dominion over creation he was experiencing what adam should have experienced and what were jesus and peter both doing that reminds us of the dominion theme of genesis 128 they were treading underneath the creation and based on this we could fully and easily assert that in all likelihood in his perfected state adam prior to sin could walk on water because he was perfectly in God's will. He was in perfect dominion over creation. And we know this because Peter did it for a minute. Peter apparently saw in Jesus that his dominion over the waves, he saw an authorization for his own dominion and mastery. And listen, Peter was not trying to imitate Jesus as God. That would be blasphemy. What he was trying to do was imitate what the second Adam could do the perfect man in dominion over creation. And for a moment, he did it. How about this one? Jesus rode to Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12, all say this. But Mark 11, verse two gives a detail that's really important. This was the colt of a donkey that had never been ridden. And yet Jesus demonstrated easy dominion over the animal world. In this case, over an unbroken donkey. He was operating prior to the decree of God of Genesis nine two that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Jesus operated as a second Adam, and that colt of a donkey who had never been ridden saw his Lord and Master and submitted, because he saw the Lord of creation. Last month our family spent a few days at Yosemite and we were at Mirror Lake. Now, Mirror Lake is really more like Mirror Puddle these days because it's filling up with silt. It was very cold, and much of Mirror Puddle was frozen over. We found this little spot with a view. We had brought a small snack, and we kind of sat down on some rocks and just enjoyed the view. And right as we were eating, we just looked behind us, and there was this beautiful young doe came sauntering up behind us, and it walked so close that if we had reached out our arm, we could have touched her. And she just just came by so slowly it took like five minutes for her to go by she just stopped and looked around and walking through us and through uh, some other families phones are being whipped out like crazy and she's just walking through It was like it was the most normal thing in the world and, and i remember our family talked about what an unfallen world would be like where that genesis 9 dread of humanity is not on the animal world in which we have perfect true dominion under god's perfect plan So is the kingdom ever going to come? Yes. How do we know that? Because Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, meaning the kingdom has come as it is in heaven. Which brings us to our final piece, of course, we'll call it the completion of the kingdom plan. The completion of the kingdom plan. If we take Genesis 1 26 through 28 as the central directive, as the core idea of God's redemptive plan, we should expect to see the themes of creation and dominion continue throughout Scripture. Sin has hampered mankind's ability to fulfill the purposes of God, and so God inaugurated his plan of redemption, of buying back, so to speak, that which is his. And through God's plan, which is centered on the cross of Christ, the Savior, on the King of Kings, what has been buried in the sinful history of humanity will rise again in the future. Now, it won't happen all at once. It will happen in stages, as evidenced by the Bible's clear teaching on a coming thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. This will be a time when we begin to see what it looks like for humanity to live in full covenant-keeping capacity to be restored to us. For example, Isaiah 11 Beginning in verse 6 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, commentators are often quick to jump to a symbolic explanation of those verses, but you can't just decide something that's symbolic if the text doesn't demand it. Is it absurd for animals to be dwelling in peace? Of course not, because they used to. That's the way it originally was in Eden. The docile and the amenable nature of the animals, it points us back to Eden before the fall in fact, the verse used in verse six, the, the verb used rather in verse six to speak of a child leading the wolf, leading the lamb, leading the leopard, the goat, the calf, the lion. It speaks of leadership or headship that a child who's, who's weaned, in other words, a little two or three-year-old says to all of the lions, come with me and they all obey him. In fact, it's a word that's used to speak of shepherding. That a little child can shepherd a pack of wolves or a pride of lions or a leap of leopards as a group of leopards is called. And why is this? Because this is part of God's promise to restore humanity and part of God's promise to a coming restored Israel. By the way, Listen to the connection here made in Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, this is God speaking of Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of your youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal for I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. What does that sound like? Genesis 1. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety This is an unmistakable reference to the central directive of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and it will be Israel specifically involved at the center of its implementation. Now to close our time tonight, turn with me to Revelation 21. Opposite polar end of the Bible. Revelation 21, and we're going to jump around to a few verses, because just to prove the point of the completion of the kingdom plan, Remember the list of features of the kingdom that we started with in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, let's walk through those again, except this time from Revelation 21 and 22. First feature, Mankind in a pristine, perfect world created by God. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So a perfect world created by God. The second feature mankind exercising dominion over the earth. Exercising dominion. Look with me at chapter 22 verse 5. And the night will be no more They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Mankind exercising dominion. How about mankind as a perfect representative of God on earth, as the image of God? Look at just the previous verse, chapter 22, verse four. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, perfectly identified as God's image, as God's representatives. They bear the badge of representation. A fourth feature, Mankind multiplying into nations spread over the earth. Chapter 21, verse 24. Chapter 21, verse 24. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Chapter 22, verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Nations spread over the earth. There's a fifth feature. Mankind working as God's representatives on earth. Chapter 21, verse 26. They, the nations, will bring into it the glory and the honor of, Of the nations. What is the honor? It's the word we looked at this morning, Teme, the money, the goods. The nations have been working, they've been producing, they've been making. Why? So that they have things to bring to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords in New Jerusalem. A sixth feature mankind in perfect fellowship with God. Chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Perfect fellowship. Chapter 21 verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. A temple implies a need for mediation because there's separation but there's no need of the temple because the the Lord God is the temple and Perfect fellowship has been restored. There's no mediation necessary. A seventh feature, mankind in sinless relationship with God. Mankind in sinless relationship with God. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and the servants will worship Him. How about mankind in perfect fellowship with each other? Chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. In other words, we have perfect relationships because we're only with those perfected people that are now the kingdom citizens. How about one more feature? Mankind organized in nations with a central capital nation. I've said that before, I am a card-carrying dispensationalist because God's plan to restore Israel is so clear in Scripture that we ought to submit to that. Revelation 21 Verses two and following describes New Jerusalem. Now the question is, what nation is New Jerusalem in? Well we get some clues. First clue, chapter twenty one, verse nineteen. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was Jasper, and then it lists sapphire, agate, emerald, and so forth, all the way to the twelfth amethyst at the end of verse twenty. The foundations apparently are extremely ornate one commentator said that we should not be so naive as to take that literally. Why not? If you you own everything, why not adorn your city with these glorious stones? But the clue here is that these stones, when translated properly in accordance with what the stones we see in Exodus 28, these are the same 12 stones put on the breastplate of the high priest of guess what nation? Israel. Only this is the breastplate, the ephod that just goes for miles and miles. That's the first clue. We get a second clue. And it's pretty obvious. Chapter 21, verse 12. It, speaking of New Jerusalem, had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. That's a pretty obvious clue. But let me give you my favorite one. Chapter 21, verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, why are their names important? Why are the apostles honored? Is this some sort of memorial to the past great deeds they had done? It is not a memorial. If I've said that in the past, I was wrong. It's not a memorial. It's not something about the past, it's something about the present. Because God, through the person of Jesus Christ, gave the apostles a future job. Matthew nineteen twenty eight. Jesus said to them, that is the apostles, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of, guess what nation? Israel. Once upon a time, God determined to create a kingdom for his own glory and his own fame and this kingdom will be brought about by the Son of God and the plan will be completed 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four says then comes the end when he that is Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every power and every authority and every power so the kingdom plan will come about the Bible has passed you up chronologically and has gotten ahead of you and tells you what's coming now the right question to ask right now is so what let me give you three so what's and then we'll close for the evening the first so what you are to be kingdom minded if you have not heard anything else tonight in the last five weeks i hope you have heard kingdom 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 you're to be kingdom minded in your witness to the world You're to be kingdom-minded in your families because kingdom citizens are obedient to the king and the king says, husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands and children obey your parents. You're to be kingdom-minded in your church because the king, the head of the church has said, obey your leaders. He's told the leaders to preach the word, that we're to do the work of of evangelism. We're to be gospel-centered. We're to be kingdom-minded in our personal comfort, our personal peace. Oh, how often we go down that that hopeless road of trying to generate some sort of emotion of comfort when there is none to be had. How about this for comfort? Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You may have a frown on your face now, but you can be rest assured the smile will be unending do you really think that we, when we stand in the kingdom for the first time and somebody says and all God's people said and we're going to say amen. Do you really think that's going to happen? You won't be able to contain yourself. And so we find personal comfort and peace by, by in the imagination of our mind and in the, the objective information of scripture looking ahead to that day. How glorious that is. Here's a second so what. The church is to obey the central directive. The church is to obey the central directive. The command to be fruitful and multiply is precisely what Christ told the church to do in the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, this is Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is that? It is being fruitful and multiplying. The people at Babel wanted to use their grouping together solely for their own benefit. The church is not to be like them. We're not to view the church as solely for us and care little for the lost. In fact, this may feel harsh, but I think I can support it biblically. If you say, I don't really want the church to grow, you would be very welcome at the Tower of Babel because you're going against the central directive of God. One more, so what? And we have to include this to be part of the kingdom. You must love the king. To be part of the kingdom, you must love the king. There is literally no other way. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You must acknowledge your need of a Savior. You must submit to him as your sovereign. As we go through Genesis, we're going to see very clearly and very quickly in Genesis a division of two types of people, those who called upon the name of the Lord and those who tried to invent things to get away from God and make life more pleasurable. Which one are you? Well, the rest of our messages in Genesis will all center around the kingdom theme. Next week, we're going to look at the original kingdom, Genesis 1 through 3. We'll and well, 1 through 4 rather and we'll stop there for this evening Our Father we thank you so much for the clarity that we have that Genesis really sets us up to understand the rest of the Bible and Lord it's with joy that we look forward to the coming kingdom reading Genesis 1 and 2 is, is pretty much like reading Revelation 21 and 22 it tells us what once was but it also tells us what will be And Lord, I pray for each person here that they would cultivate a kingdom anticipation where this life holds little for them, holds little appeal, holds little hold on them. But instead, Lord, we would look forward to that coming kingdom. How healthy it is for us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I would pray that I don't get to finish this series. I would pray that Christ would return and take us home and then the seven years predicted in scripture would commence and then shortly thereafter we would return with him to reign in glory for a thousand years followed by the eternal state in which we get to be a part of the new heavens and the new earth to walk through the streets of New Jerusalem 1400 miles long and wide and high the most amazing creation we will have ever seen and so Lord I pray that you would cultivate in us a kingdom mentality, a kingdom focus so that we might live lives of peace and sanctification and holiness as good kingdom citizens looking forward to the return of our king. For it is in his name we pray this evening. Amen.